This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class from 2018 on the history of State of the Union addresses, taught by Stonehill College professor Peter Ubertasio. So today we are going to discuss the State of the Union address. And we're going to do it by uh, using Jeffrey Tulis to our benefit. So just to recap a little bit, the State of the Union address straddles the two constitutional presidencies that Jeffrey Tulis defined in your readings. The first one, as you recall, that first big C constitutional presidency, these are the formal rules and procedures that define our system. And also the formal expectations placed upon the executive during the founding era. The big C constitutional presidency is one that proscribes popular leadership. The second one, the small c constitutional presidency, this is a creation of our progressive presidents. And it has been built up since the time of Woodrow Wilson. And the small c constitutional presidency prescribes popular leadership. It demands it of presidents. And if you recall from your readings, that big C formal structure of the Constitution and the small c popular presidency, that these exist uneasily with one another in the modern era. We'll pick up uh, on this again later today. We discussed earlier in the semester that, in part, thanks to our friend Governor Morris, Article Two of the Constitution has far less specificity in it than Article One. Does anyone recall why that is the case? Grace? Hamilton wanted the presidents to seize the silences of the Constitution. Okay, so you will recall that Alexander Hamilton uh, and his allies wanted to create space within the Constitution for presidents to act when the Constitution is silent. So we referred to that as seizing the silences of the Constitution. And this was a deliberative effort to allow presidents to retain and accumulate power within the system. And Hamilton and his allies believed that it should be the executive's prerogative to act when the Constitution was silent or even against the Constitution if the general will demanded it, especially in foreign affairs. Seizing the silences of the Constitution, as you may recall, will become one of the most dangerous and controversial of presidential actions. Now, one element of Article II that is fairly specific but has resulted in different interpretations over time is the State of the Union Address. And this is found in Section 3 of Article II. Quite simply, he shall from time to time give to the Congress information on the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. So today we're going to discuss the history of this provision and how the, how the State of the Union Address has evolved over time and we'll consider its place in modern American political culture. And we'll use Jeffrey Tulis's conception of the two constitutional presidencies. For the history of the State of the Union, the State of the Union Address mirrors changes in the executive office itself. It highlights changes to our expectations of presidential leadership and also highlights the limits of our modern rhetorical and increasingly omnipresent president. So let's start with the basic mechanics of of this address. Uh, this is an annual event of state, allegedly. Two houses of Congress convene in the chamber of the House of Representatives. The diplomatic corps is present. The Joint Chiefs are there. The justices of the Supreme Court are in attendance. The First Lady enters to respectful applause. And then the most important part for me is the following. 
Well, why do we think that uh, particular clip is so exciting to me? <laughs> Not only because it would appear to be an awesome job aspiration for me, I think that I could belt out Mr. Speaker, President of the United States, with a uh, good amount of ease. What, is the, what do those words indicate to us? I know it's so short, and it's, so, it's, it, it's not the, uh, the thing that people are waiting for, but there's something about that clip that helps us to understand our constitutional system, the fact that he is announced by the House Sergeant-at-Arms, indicates that this is not the president's domain. This is not his house. He comes by invitation. He is escorted. Before this happens, the Speaker of the House of Representatives and the Vice President of the United States, acting in his capacity as President of the Senate, will put together an escort committee of legislators, and they will exit the chamber, and typically these are congressional leaders, maybe congressional members of Congress from the President's home state, and they will escort the President uh, into, the, into the chamber of the House. And it's important to understand this, because in a system of separate institutions, a system of separation of powers, the president doesn't just walk in. Right? This is not his government. He is invited by the House to come and address them, and he walks into a co-equal branch of government. Now, after the pomp, the speech takes on today all of the hallmarks of a political rally, right? If there is one feature from a State of the Union address that we are probably all really familiar with, it is the incessant applause. And then the unusual nature, particularly or perhaps only during divided government, when one party controls one or both houses, right, and the president is of a different party, when the president says something uh, that his party really likes, and if the speaker is of his party, the speaker stands, but the, or if the vice president uh, will stand, obviously the vice president would be of his party. And the speaker is not. The speaker remains seated while the vice president applauds. This looked really awkward during the Clinton years, uh, just because Al Gore had, a, had an interesting way of applauding the president. You know, and they, sometimes they stand together. Sometimes they don't stand at all. Sometimes half the chamber stands to applaud uh, the president if it's something partisan. Uh, this looks more like a political rally uh, than anything else. The Washington Post reported that during George W. Bush's State of the Union address, for every minute of his speech, there were 29 seconds of applause. Right? So, so that's a lot of interruptions uh, in a State of the Union address. Many people watch. President Trump commanded an audience of 46 million Americans during his 2018 State of the Union. That ranks ninth in terms of viewership of a presidential address, address before Congress, and that includes all presidential addresses. Not all presidential addresses are formal State of the Union speeches. President Clinton's address in 1993 was the most watched with 65 million people uh, tuning in. It's no surprise that those numbers have declined and probably will continue to decline if for no other reason citizens have a lot of other options when presidents are on television. Those of us of a certain age will remember that when the president was on television there were no other options because there were three stations and each one had the president of the United States uh, giving an address. Uh, if that seems like a long time ago, I guess it was a long time ago. Today, Citizens have a lot of other options uh, to choose from when a president is speaking. Uh, it also makes it more difficult for presidents to get their message out because so many of us are no longer tuning in. So that's not a surprise that we'd see that decline. There are other reasons why it might not be a surprise. Remember that second constitutional presidency of Jeffrey Tulis's requires popular leadership. It requires presidents to stand in the well of the House and to demand that Congress move certain bills. It requires presidents to try to grab the mantle of public opinion. There are a few big problems here. 
The first is that that large C constitutional presidency separates power. The reason I really enjoy the clip of the, of the sergeant in arms introducing the president is because it is a reminder that Congress is independently elected and it has its own source of power. It's not derived from the executive. And that Congress is itself divided between those two houses and those two houses are rarely under the thumb of the executive, even when the president is popular. Second big problem is that presidents routinely face a Congress that is further divided by political party. In the modern era, only Franklin Roosevelt, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and Jimmy Carter have had one-party control of Congress during their entire presidency. And you know from your reading of history that even they faced significant obstacles. Uh, those, the four years of the Carter presidency, one, one might wonder if in fact the Republicans did control Congress because he faced so many obstacles in getting his agenda through that institution. So even one party control does not guarantee that presidents are going to be successful in Congress. Finally, the third dilemma here is that popular leadership is almost always predicated on the popularity of the incumbent president. And some presidencies, as you know, become extraordinarily unpopular. We can think of the last two years of the presidency of Woodrow Wilson, for example, or the last two years of the presidency of George W. Bush. Presidents became really unpopular during those terms, during that time in office. And if that second constitutional presidency is predicated on popular leadership, well, what happens when the president becomes extraordinarily unpopular? And even when they are popular, or when they remain relatively popular, they can, in certain congressional districts, be really unpopular. And if those congressional districts are important to uh, the leadership in the House and the Senate, then that's an even additional obstacle that presidents have in getting their legislation through Congress. So what, if anything, can the State of the Union do here? How can it address these problems of popular leadership? What I'd argue is that it can do very little because it has become less a tool of governance or a window in the, into the executive's unique view in our constitutional system and much more of a partisan address. It might be that the State of the Union is part of the problem of the modern presidency. So let's talk a little bit about the history of this address and see if we can't understand it a little bit better, changes uh, to it over time, uh, and understand how it fits into our uh, examples of modern presidential leadership. So the provision in the Constitution, that Article uh, 2, Section 3, it did not have an equivalent in the Articles of Confederation. So the framers of our Constitution, we're not, we're not pulling this from the Articles of Confederation. You know that the Articles of Confederation really provided no more than a presiding officer for the executive. So there was no model there for them to pull from. Our State of the Union was modeled on the King's speech from the throne which was called the most gracious speech from, uh, in Parliament. We'll refer to it as the Queen's speech today in honor of, of Queen Elizabeth. The most grace, gracious speech to Parliament, this was an occasion when the monarch commanded members of Parliament to attend to him as he laid before them his priorities and his policy recommendations. King George III's most gracious speech to Parliament in October 1775 noted, for example, quote, the present situation in America and my constant desire to have your advice, concurrence, and assistance on every important occasion 
have determined me to call you thus together early. Now, this is a command, no matter how gracious the language is. This is a command that Parliament attend to the king. And this language was modified a bit, as one might expect, in the early American constitutions. The New York Constitution of 1777, quote, It shall be the duty of the governor to inform the legislature at every session of the condition of the state, so far as may respect his department, to recommend such matters to their consideration as shall appear to him to concern its good government, welfare, and prosperity. The Pennsylvania Constitution was more straightforward and a little more similar to what we find in the U.S. Constitution. Quote, He shall from time to time give to the General Assembly information of the state of the Commonwealth and recommend to their consideration such measures as he may judge expedient. Now, the impetus for the State of the Union Address, for the language we find in the Constitution, derives in part from the expectations placed upon the American executive. Recall that when the office was designed, it was to be the only one that had a view of the whole the only office that could see the needs of the whole country. Whereas members of Congress were expected to have more parochial concerns. They were expected to be more concerned about uh, issues confronting their districts, their constituents, or their states. And the executive was the only one that, by virtue of that position atop the constitutional structure, could see the entirety. It was also supposed to be inhabited by continental figures who were to have a sense of public opinion but were not to be beholden to public opinion. Now, the first State of the Union was very brief and very formal. And it was also the shortest on record in terms of word count. And it registered just 1,089 words. And that is like a four-page paper, unless you've increased your font size. So we're talking short here. Washington said, quote, I have directed the proper officers to lay before you respectfully such papers and estimates as regard the affairs particularly recommended to your consideration and necessary to convey to you that information of the State of the Union, which is my duty to afford. Okay, that's not really eloquent, right, or memorable. Uh, But it's a style that is in line with Washington's goal to read the Constitution literally and to follow it plainly, right? Washington is doing this for what reason? Do we recall? Why is Washington so concerned about following the Constitution so plainly? Yeah. Because he was the first president and uh, he knew anything you do would set a precedent. Okay. Because he knew he was first and he knew that in, in everything he did was going to establish a precedent. So in so many of his actions, he was so careful about how he proceeded. And the State of the Union is no exception, right? It's, it's, his addresses are very formal. They're rather succinct. And quite frankly, at the time, right, government was just getting started. So there weren't many things to report, as one might expect, given the state of affairs at that time. Okay. Now, Washington is delivering this address in person. And that practice continues under his successor, John Adams. Washington's average word count for his State of the Union address is about 2,000 words, not lengthy. Adams was a bit less wordy. He had an average of 1,790 words for his State of the Union addresses. Thomas Jefferson 
when he assumes office after the bitter election of 1800, ends the practice of giving the State of the Union in person. He believed that the ceremony itself smacked of monarchy. And we are well aware of Jefferson's views on monarchs, and he thought that this speech was far too similar to the king's speech from the throne. Now, I thought it might be useful. It, this obviously is not King George III. I couldn't find a YouTube clip of him. But I do have Queen Elizabeth II. And so at least in um, uh, style, you get a sense of, of what this looks like. And we'll talk about the substance for a minute. If you're familiar with uh, how American presidents are introduced during our State of the Union, this clip is somewhat of a shock. Now, what she does there is she is commanding the lords to uh, attend to her, to sit on her command. And then what happens after that is she will give an indication uh, that the House of Commons is to be summoned to attend to her as well. Now, what's interesting about the way that the British do this is that neither the Queen nor the House of Lords is where actual political power resides in the United Kingdom. Uh, but during this address, which is very formal, uh, there's no applause, right? She's actually reading the words that the government has written for her. The government will stand in the back. The House of Commons, the Prime Minister, the Cabinet, the opposition, they all stand in the rear after being summoned by the queen. Now they do slam the door in the face of her messenger who's, who's uh, called Black Rod, and, uh, but they open it. Black Rod will enter and then command them to attend her majesty, right? This is all a little bit too much for Thomas Jefferson, right? It's a little bit too much to allow a president and executive to um, command the attendance of representatives of the people. So he ends the practice. Now, incidentally, Thomas Jefferson's not a great speaker. He's a great writer. He's a phenomenal thinker. He's not the best at public oratory. So that may also have had something to do with him ending this tradition. But you know, traditions of George Washington uh, don't die easily, right? Think of the two-term uh, tradition that ends up being written into the Constitution. Nevertheless, this, Jefferson is able to end this tradition. When he stops appearing before Congress, uh, it'll be well over 100 years before another president will appear before Congress to deliver the State of the Union. Now here, presidents are freed from the burden of oral delivery. And as a result, they become much more verbose. Jefferson's first State of the Union had just over 3,000 words. This would swell to over 10,000 under our friend Milliard Fillmore, who appears from time to time irregularly in this class. It would average about 19,000 under the progressive Theodore Roosevelt, and interestingly hit a high of 22,614 words under the conservative William Howard Taft. <laughs> Our most loquacious modern president is Bill Clinton, and his speeches delivered before Congress would average about 7,400 words, just to give you a comparison of the difference. The last time a president submitted a written address was Jimmy Carter upon leaving office in 1981. And that written address 
was, in the modern era, uh, significant, 33,000 words. But his final orally delivered address to Congress in 1980 was a mere 3,400. President Trump's uh, first day of the news about, you know, an average 5,000 words. Not the greatest, not the smallest. Andrew? Um, what's the difference between the written and the oral addresses, and can a president still submit a written State of the Union address? So the answer between what's the difference is there, it, it, only really that they're longer, but that's just by style. There's nothing constitutionally ordained in the idea that a written State of the Union, union would be longer than an orally delivered State of the Union. Uh, when you don't have the pressure to speak publicly, you can write as much as you want because then it's some poor, poor clerk's responsibility to have to read it uh, before Congress, if they do, than it is for you to deliver it, right? And the second part of the question, can a president, if they so choose, uh, deliver their State of the Union address uh, in, a, in written fashion, right? What do we think? Can a president, if they so desire, send their State of the Union in uh, written form? Yes. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. It's simply a choice. President Carter gave his last in, in 1981 in written fashion. Uh, in the early 70s, President Nixon experimented with written addresses that were all very lengthy, though he gave most of his State of the Union addresses in person. It's really just a choice. Now, it's a good question because the demands of the second constitutional presidency, the one that prescribes popular leadership, makes it difficult to imagine how presidents can avoid uh, delivering it in person. You know, because it demands that, it demands the spectacle. Even if it's largely unsuccessful at times, which we'll get to. You know, Carter obviously in 1981 was on his way out of office having just been defeated in the 1980 election by Ronald Reagan. So that you know, is an exception, uh, but presidents certainly reserve the right. The Constitution only says that they shall deliver, that they shall do this from time to time. It doesn't mandate that they do it in either written or in person fashion. Okay. Now, we noted that when Millard Fillmore is hitting 10,000 words, Right in his written address, and Bill Clinton's averaging about, you know, seven thousand. Uh, it's ironic because one of the modern critiques of the State of the Union address is that they're nothing more than long laundry lists of proposals. But of course, the written addresses were far longer uh, than those that have been delivered in person. The difference beyond the length is the expectation. The expectation of a personal address with its commands that Congress do things. And increasingly, it's overt appeal to partisanship. You know, these kind of, the personal commitment that presidents are now expected to make in their State of the Union is very different than what we uh, saw when they issued these addresses in writing. So the tradition, even if they're shorter than their written counterparts, is that, con you know, the presidents lay before Congress a very long list of policy proposals. The difference is that in the earlier addresses, it appeared that presidents were aware that they alone did not have the power to demand compliance with their goals. Whereas our, our, our modern version suggests that, you know, we've talked about the presidential magic wand, that if presidents can just wave that magic wand, they will get Congress to do what they want, uh, they often try to, and they, they realize the magic wand isn't working. It rarely, rarely does. All right, so this in-person uh, practice was reinstated by Woodrow Wilson in April of 1913. Now, Wilson believed that the constitutional separation of powers was a flaw in the American constitutional system. And so he had spent a good part of his life critiquing separation of powers. He was not alone in this. 
Interestingly, we can consider William Howard Taft, his very conservative predecessor. Taft uh, sent his December 1912 State of the Union address to Congress in written fashion. And there's this fascinating passage in Taft's State of the Union. Again, Taft is the conservative. Taft is the one in the 1912 election which, which pitted, a, a, in the view of many, a, a radical Theodore Roosevelt versus a radical uh, Woodrow Wilson and the uh, conservative William Howard Taft, the defender of the Constitution. And he wrote in his 1912 address... The rigid holding apart of the executive and legislative branches of this government has not worked for the great advantage of either. There has been much lost in the machinery due to the lack of cooperation and interchange of views face-to-face between the representatives of the executive and members of the two legislative branches of government. It was never intended that they should be separated in the sense of not being in constant, effective touch and relationship to each other. The legislative and executive each performs its own appropriate function, but these functions must be coordinated. Now, that is a fascinating passage coming from the the quite conservative William Howard Taft. It's something we'd expect Wilson to have said, but it, but it wasn't. And so there was, there was this, this yearning at the time for greater cooperation, greater coordination between the branches. Now that address that Wilson gave in April of 1913 was not an official State of the Union address. At that point in history, even in the written form, the State of the Union was delivered in December of the calendar year. Uh, The practice of a December State of the Union address didn't change until 1934 with the change in congressional calendar, and now State of the Union addresses are given typically mid to late January, occasionally early February, the start of a congressional session. Woodrow Wilson believed that a strong party leader could overcome what he viewed as the defects of our constitutional system. And during the early years of his presidency, he both dominated the Democratic Party and dominated Congress. And so it lent some credence to his view that a popular party leader could overcome the obstacles embedded in the Constitution. But he didn't formally change the Constitution. And presidents are not prime ministers nor are they monarchs. And he was able to temporarily overcome constitutional norms without changing the terms of the Constitution. He appeared frequently before Congress to talk about a whole range of issues in addition to his formal State of the Union addresses. And because of that, he helped to create an expectation of presidential government of executive leadership that is capable via words and actions of ameliorating social and economic disparities and political differences. He created an expectation of that presidential magic wand. The presidents could wave it and Congress and the states would do a president's bidding. This view has largely stuck through Democratic and Republican administrations. Despite the unhappy experience of Wilson's last two years in office. So he presents, during the course of his presidency, the promises of popular leadership, of which the State of the Union is an example, but also the perils of popular leadership. You may remember that the 1918 midterm elections, that's his second midterm, the midterm of his second term as president, represented a rejection of Woodrow Wilson. And the Republicans gained control of both houses of Congress in a repudiation of Wilson's policies. What good is popular party leadership if presidents 
if a president's party does not control the Congress. The Senate, you will recall from your history, rejected his proposal for a League of Nations during this time period. And they did this despite Wilson's efforts to tour the country, to rally public opinion to his cause, right? Again, Wilson hoped that public, that the president would be the repository of public opinion and that that would force Congress to act in the way that he saw fit. But by the end of his presidency, he was no longer the repository of public opinion. He was no longer popular. But he's built a model of presidential leadership that is based on popularity. And that final year in particular for Wilson's presidency is a really lonely one. Now, despite that kind of grim reality, his transformation of the State of the Union was complete. And it is now a central feature of a Wilsonian view of both government and executive power. Now, it wasn't immediate. Wilson, uh, in addition to the 1918 repudiation of Wilson's presidency, the country, as you remember, returns to normalcy in 1920. And his conservative successors, uh, they don't follow his lead. Calvin Coolidge did appear uh, once uh, before Congress. But Harding, Coolidge, by and large, Hoover, they're not delivering their State of the Union uh, in person. They are reverting back to that earlier Jeffersonian tradition of delivering their State of the Union in writing. But since the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt, it has become customary for the president to deliver the address before a joint session of Congress. And though the Constitution, again, is pretty clear, the president shall from time to time give to Congress information on the State of the Union, the context of this speech during the modern era has changed dramatically. Now, one of the most important developments is under uh, President Lyndon Johnson. Johnson brings the speech into prime time. And this allows the address to be given directly to the American people. This dramatically increases the number of people who are paying attention to the State of the Union address, as you might imagine, right? Now, the first televised State of the Union occurred in 1947 after over 20 years of, of radio coverage. And Calvin Coolidge was, we, popular, we popularly remember FDR as the president who really harnessed radio, but it really was Coolidge to begin with, to harness that new technology. And his uh, presidency was the first to use radio quite effectively. Franklin Roosevelt was... Uh, even more effective, and certainly the context uh, had changed dramatically during his presidency. Roosevelt is also the first to call this the State of the Union. Uh, it had been called the Annual Address, uh, but Roosevelt is the first to popularize that term uh, every year. Harry Truman is the first to appear on television to deliver the State of the Union. Those technological advances started to make the speech less of an address to the Congress and more of an address to the American people from the Congress. The House of Representatives becomes in many ways a really cool television set for presidents to directly address the American people which is a very different interpretation of the State of the Union than what we find in the Constitution and what early presidents expected. So Johnson, as was his want, you know, formalizes this by moving the speech into prime time. If it's going to be a speech where you're talking directly to the people, why not do it uh, when most of them can watch? On this hill which was my home, I am stirred by old friendships. Though
total agreement between the executive and the Congress is impossible. Total respect is important. Now, we know a lot about President Johnson. Of course, you know, those are, those are significant words. He, he actually did mean respect for him and his office and his policy proposals, right? Interestingly, that State of the Union is delivered in January of 1969. That's his final. And uh, uh, just a short time before Richard Nixon would, would take uh, uh, the oath of office as president. So th- presidents were also delivering these at the end of their term, which is a custom that they no longer subscribe to. The last time a president delivered a State of the Union at the end of their presidency was President Carter, who delivered it in writing. Some presidents, like Frank, uh, Ronald Reagan, have chosen a farewell address, but none since Carter have formally had a State of the Union at, in January of their final, you know, final couple of weeks uh, in office. But note also the, the Wilsonian conception here. Not only is he moving it into prime time so that millions of Americans can, can watch him. Uh, and while he acknowledges, you know, it's never, we're going to never get together perfectly, uh, total respect is important. And what that means institutionally is respect for the presidency and its policy initiatives. And in 1969, of course, we're coming off of pretty significant legislative enactments by Johnson and previous Congress. And so this is really the, the height of of an activist federal government during Johnson. And the State of the Union was designed in part to harness the power of the executive. Well, uh, the opposition party wasn't going to allow an increase in viewership to happen without a response. Literally. So in 1966, Republican congressional leaders gave the first official response to a State of the Union address, a 30-minute televised address by Republican Senators Everett Dirksen and Representative Gerald Ford, the Republican leaders of the House and Senate. And this tradition takes off. In some fits and starts, they didn't always do in the early years, but by the 1970s, It had uh, become a tradition and is routinely given by a member or members of the opposition party immediately following the State of the Union address. So you may uh, recall that uh, our own Congressman Joe Kennedy gave the opposition response, the formal opposition response to President Trump's State of the Union in 2018. Uh, Sometimes they're given by congressional leaders. uh, Other times they're given by up-and-coming members of the party. Sometimes governors will give the address. Uh, It's a way for the opposition party to highlight its message in response to the State of the Union address by a president. Well, after uh, moving it to prime time, you might think, well, what what more is there left to do to innovate of the State of the Union, to innovate within the State of the Union address, right? What more can presidents do to reinterpret or reimagine this constitutional directive. Well, when Ronald Reagan entered office in 1981, he didn't allow his essential conservatism to prevent him from expanding the spectacle of, that the State of the Union had become. So uh, Reagan is also a master of, of stagecraft and a master at storytelling. And so in 1982, he adds something that we hadn't seen before. Just just two weeks ago, in the midst of a terrible tragedy on the Potomac, we saw again the spirit of American heroism at its finest. The heroism of dedicated rescue workers saving crash victims from icy waters. And we saw the heroism of one of our young government employees, Lenny Scutney, who, when he saw a woman lose her grip on the helicopter line, dived into the water and dragged her to safety. (laughs) 
Okay, so you see there uh, President Reagan adding this element, bringing in honored guests and then introducing them from the floor. I mean, these are, these are stories typically of great American uh, heroes. And so he's, he's, again, turning the State of the Union into something that we might expect on television. These are great stories. These are great people to introduce. It has very little to do with the constitutional directive, uh, but it has a lot to do with that small c, second constitutional presidency, presidency, which demands popular leadership, right? And so we see these kinds of things starting to flourish in the 1980s and 1990s. Now, in this particular instance, more often than not, the, the folks who are being introduced are uh, nonpartisan. Everyone has a reason to, to want to applaud and to recognize them, right? Well, you know, you, presidents don't miss opportunities to score partisan points as well. So something similar occurred uh, during the presidency of Bill Clinton in his 1996 address. See if you can spot the difference. I'd like to give you one example. His name is Richard Dean. He's a 49-year-old Vietnam veteran who's worked for the Social Security Administration for 22 years now. Last year, he was hard at work in the federal building in Oklahoma City when the blast killed 169 people and brought the rubble down all around him. He re-entered that building four times. He saved the lives of three women. He's here with us this evening, and I, I want to recognize Richard and applaud both his public service and his extraordinary personal heroism. Richard Dean's story doesn't end there. This last November, he was forced out of his office when the government shut down. And the second time the government shut down, he continued helping Social Security recipients, but he was working without pay. On behalf of Richard Dean and his family, and all the other people who are out there, working every day, doing a good job for the American people, I challenge all of you in this chamber let never, ever shut the federal government down again. Okay, what do we think about that? What's the difference between that clip we showed of Ronald Reagan and the clip here from Bill Clinton? Yeah. Uh, Bill Clinton uses his story to uh, turn up his personal, a personal story he created into an account that scores points for his political party. Okay. So, so Clinton takes this, this moment, not unlike the Reagan moment, of national unity, a certifiable hero, someone who raced into the, to the Oklahoma City building as it was, it was being turned into rubble to rescue people on multiple occasions. And then he uses that to make a political argument about not shutting down the government, right? Now, uh, that's very different, right? So if we had watched all of the applause here, what you would have seen is uh, uh, behind President Clinton in this address is Republican Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Lots of Republicans controlled, or Republicans controlled the House and Senate in 1996. You'd have seen that moment where one party stands wildly to applaud while another party sits grimly. Now, uh, Clinton scored here. That, that he, he, he scored politically, right? And so we start to see that the address... Uh, the lore of politics is too great for many presidents. This is Wilson's small c constitutional presidency. It is designed to uh, 
It is designed for party leadership. And so presidents don't avoid the opportunity to use the address to try to score political points. This is, we are way far away from that formal kind of succinct address that George Washington would have given or many of his successors. And we are now into the latter stages of that small c constitutional presidency where presidents are using these opportunities to advance a political agenda. Where are we today? Well, uh, you may recall a couple of, of instances uh, that are hallmarks of today's address. The first one is really unusual. It doesn't happen that often. But as the address has become more partisan, it's perhaps something we should uh, expect to see again in future. You may recall this. There are also those who claim that our reform efforts would ensure illegal immigrants. This too is false. The reforms, the reforms I'm proposing would not apply to those who are here illegally. It's not true. And okay, one more. so that is uh, Congressman Joe Wilson yelling at President Obama, you lie. Now, that's not a formal State of the Union address. It is a presidential address before Congress, right? So the president here is speaking about uh, the health care uh, bill that he's advancing. And uh, Wilson uh, apologizes for the outburst. It was considered a breach of decorum. Uh, so, you know, th there's that. Uh, but the face on the vice president, Nancy Pelosi, during this is, is classic. I mean, this is, they consider this a real breach. Uh, and yet, as the address has become more partisan, it's perhaps not unusual that the House would look more like the House of Commons during a debate. If you've ever seen prime minister's questions during House, House of Commons, right, it is shown every week on C-SPAN on uh, Sunday evenings. I don't know what you're doing on Sunday evenings, but I'm usually watching at least a clip from uh, uh, Prime Minister's Questions, much to the chagrin of my children who'd rather be watching Sunday Night Football. But we get in a little British civics before the big game. Uh, they shout and yell at each other and they, they hoot and holler, right? That's typically not how uh, uh, business in the American house is done. Uh, this resembles that a little more, where, where you have a member of Congress really... Uh, speaking out during the course of a presidential State of the Union. All right, let's watch this next clip. Let's see what your reaction is here. Again, this is, this is a State of the Union by President Obama in 2010. With all due deference to separation of powers, last week the Supreme Court reversed a century of law that I believe will open the floodgates for special interests, including foreign corporations, to spend without limit in our elections. I don't think American elections should be bankrolled by America's most powerful interests, or worse, by foreign entities. They should be decided by the American people. And I'd urge Democrats and Republicans to pass a bill that helps correct. All right, what do we notice about that clip from President Obama's 2010 State of the Union address? What's our takeaway here? What's our first impression? Anything unusual there? Grace? One of the Supreme Court justices was kind of like shaking his head. And okay. Justice Alito wasn't having it, right? He certainly did not agree with President Obama's assessment of what the Supreme Court had decided in the Citizens United case, right? Uh, what was his reaction? To not stand up and shake his head. And well... He didn't stand up. He did shake his head ever so slightly. That kind of look I sometimes give you, and I'm like, really, Nate? Really? Right? That ever so slight shake of the head. Maybe you mouth something. He's mouthing not true. <laughs> if, you, if you slow it down, right, you can see what he's saying. But what do we notice about what the Supreme Court does? You have a president of the United States who says, in all due deference, however, he does launch a broadside against the Supreme Court 
and the decision they had just handed down. And what does the Supreme Court do in response? Aaron? They don't stand up. They don't stand up. They actually never stand up. Presidents know this, right? Now, they do when, when it is a, a completely unobjectionable point, right? So at the outset, presidents are introduced, and everyone stands and applauds for them out of respect. When the president introduces a hero sitting in the, the audience, the Supreme Court will stand up. When it's an unobjectionable, clearly nonpartisan uh, uh, overture that the president is making, then the court will respond accordingly. But for the entire address, when presidents are issuing that laundry list of policy proposals, members of Congress are applauding every few seconds, the Supreme Court sits there and they don't respond. Now, why do we think that is? Why, why do members of the Supreme Court sit there in, in silence? Yeah. Because they're supposed to remain above the political debate. Okay, so they're, they're supposed to remain above it all, why? because they're supposed to be the independent judiciary who just decide what is constitutional and what's not, and not um, trying to get involved on the nuances of politics. Well, sure. So exactly. So their, their commitment is to the rule of law. And it would be detrimental to the rule of law if the president said something like, I want you to pass this campaign finance reform bill, and half the Supreme Court applauded and the other half did not and then they were called at a later date to adjudicate the issue, which we know they will be called upon to do because most of our political uh, issues and policy issues end up as issues before the court. Now, it is unusual for a president to call out the court in such a way when they are seated right in front of him, unable to respond, while partisans stand up around them and applaud. Uh, that is a very awkward scene. And some Supreme Court justices after this, you have not seen Justice Alito at a, Supreme, at a State of the Union since this time. right? He's, he has stopped going. Right? Uh, he didn't hide his frustration at that moment, and he's just stopped attending. Justice Scalia, before he passed away, had long stopped attending because he thought they had turned into childish affairs. Uh, the, the, when you see the kinds of applause... The Hoot and Holler, and Justice Thomas has said that, you know, you also, the viewing audience, can't hear the things that are said under the breath of members of Congress who are seated in the audience, right? The, many justices have viewed this, view this as a waste of their time. I think only four attended the most recent State of the Union address, right? Okay. Joe Wilson's outburst is, a, is a, uh, one small example. It hasn't been, really been repeated uh, since President Obama's broadside against the Supreme Court. Again, uh, it doesn't happen uh, that often. Uh, but, you know, our recent State of the Union addresses encourage that Wilsonian view that the problem with our system is the constitutional separation of powers, separate institutions, State of the unions encourage the idea that that, though, that feature of our Constitution is a defect and that presidents are and should be political saviors who can dictate policy demands and deadlines to Congress. The reality is many presidents have learned. In fact, one of the, the, the best readings this semester is what, what presidents can learn from political scientists. They don't have a magic wand, right? That would be my memo to the president. The magic wand that your staff has convinced you you have does not exist. That doesn't mean your office is without power. It has significant political power. And you know from your readings that the relative powers of modern presidents far, are far more vast than their 19th century uh, predecessors. But they, they can't easily force Congress to bend to their will. This doesn't prevent them from trying. It doesn't prevent them from insisting that they can overcome the limits of their office through a skilled and politically adept State of the Union address. What they might gain in political prestige through this annual spectacle is something that we lose in our understanding of 
their constitutional limits, that first large C constitution that Tulis has reminded us of. So before I take your questions, let's, let's, uh, let's conclude with Shakespeare, obviously. Clinton Rossiter was a famed scholar of the presidency, and he wrote a book called The American Presidency. And he believed that the Cold War had created incredible burdens on presidents. And he wrote an epigraph uh, to his book. It was a line from Macbeth. And the line is, Methought I heard a voice cry, Sleep no more. And he sent a copy of this book to uh, President Kennedy. And Kennedy replied, Kennedy's response was that he thought Rossiter had the wrong epigraph. And Kennedy suggested dialogue from Henry IV. And in this scene, Glendower boastfully proclaims, I can call the spirits from the vasty deeps, to which the response from Hotspur is, Why, so can I, or so can any man, but will they come when you do call for them? The State of the Union address in modern American politics is Glendower. The boast that we can do this. We can use this speech to uh, summon the spirits of the American people. That Wilson believed that the president was the personification of popular leadership and the State of the Union, the preeminent example of when presidents can call the spirits of the people. We are like Hotspur, asking that really important question. Will they come? Will they follow? Increasingly, the State of the Union falls short because it is, it is a poor substitute for the constitutional separation of powers, as it attempts to be. It attempts to bridge the divide through increasing use of popular and partisan leadership. There's no evidence that it actually meets its target. All right, let's, let's take a few questions before, before we break up for, for today. What do we think? What questions do you have about presidents in their State of the Union addresses? Yeah. yeah so I just had uh, out of curiosity. You said that the um, president is welcomed and invited into um, Congress to speak to them and address them. Has a president ever been turned down or asked not to come? That's a really uh, great question. <laughs> has, a president, has a president ever been turned down? Uh, not for a State of the Union address, no. I think that would be difficult to imagine the kind of institutional gridlock that would be necessary for a Congress to, to turn down the request that a president uh, appear before them for a State of the Union. Now, there have been, there have been times you know, during the Reagan presidency where he negotiated with the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, on other presidential addresses. O'Neill was a great protector of the institutional prerogatives of the House and he did not think fondly of presidents using the House to lobby for specific legislative items outside of the contours of the State of the Union address. Uh, but no, no, that would, that would uh, I think, indicate a, a decline in civic discourse that I would prefer not to imagine. Uh, even as you can probably tell, I'm not a big fan of the way in which the State of the Union has been reinterpreted over time. I do think uh, when presidents make the request to attend, that it's, it's Congress's duty to invite them to come. Do you think the State of the Union should go back to being a nonpartisan speech, or is that even a possibility at this point? Right, so what do we think about that? Do, what do we think about uh, going back to either a written address or asking presidents to tone down the partisanship? Is that even a possibility. Yeah. I seriously doubt it, especially with the fact like that 
the spectacle is like all about like the relationship between the president and the media and like how the media like like uh, gets helped by the president and whatnot and like the president like needs to be needs to have the spectacle in order to like and be popular like get the popular vote so i mean like i i it kind of like stinks now but like i don't think it'll really change all that much yeah I suspect that you're right. I suspect it's, it's, it would be awfully hard to convince presidents that this was no longer uh, in their best interests, right? Presidents try to control the narrative, the political narrative. And so what they would reasonably believe is their failure to go and to deliver the address in person would allow someone else to control the narrative. And um, so I, I doubt very much that you know, you, you had a, a reading by the Washington Post columnist George Will. He would he would love for presidents to go back to that that earlier era where they're delivering it, writing in part because he's a critique of the Wilsonian view. And uh, practically speaking, it's unlikely that we'll go back to a written form. Now, could presidents tape, you know, tame the partisanship? Well, yeah, that's a choice, and that's a choice that they that they make. Again, I, I suspect that the pressures on them uh, to advance a narrow agenda, that those pressures are pretty, pretty heavy. All right, any other questions? Yes? Um, you said that nobody since uh, Carter like, has given a State of the Union at the end of their term. So right. like, what happens with the State of the Union that year? Is it just passed over, or does the new president give it? That's right. Um, no. So what we, what we find is that uh, Carter delivered one at the end of his term. Uh, Ford did. Uh, uh, Johnson did. Nixon resigned. So that complicates the schedule. So uh, presidents can deliver one at the end of their term. It's delivered every January. And so the outgoing president can choose to deliver a State of the Union the way that we saw Lyndon Johnson did before the joint session. Uh, they can choose to send one in writing, as President Carter did, or they can choose not to give one. Ultimately, uh, what, that's, a, that's a, a lot of presidential addresses in a short period of time. So you could have an outgoing president in early January give their final State of the Union. The incoming president gives their inaugural address in, in late January, and they often will ask Congress to also appear before them early in their term. That's not an official State of the Union. It's a presidential address before Congress. Uh, so sometimes they choose to do that as well. Uh, other presidents have opted for a farewell address, right? Again, going back to the tradition of George Washington, uh, but not all presidents choose to do that either. Now, the last two presidents, I don't believe President Obama did. President George W. Bush did not either. So, you know, there's, still, there's some flexibility. All right, everyone. Well, thank you. Uh, that's it for today. Uh, enjoy your week, and I will see you guys next Monday. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.